If you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes there, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Uh, To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? I've some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Uh, so we've been uh, walking through uh, the first two chapters of Romans up to this point, and Paul's been you know, laying out a pretty uh, intricate argument. It's kind of a you know, weird way, we've kind of said this over and over again, that he introduces himself to the Roman church. They don't know him, and so Paul's kind of saying, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is what I preach. And uh, up to this point, just to kind of recap really quickly for where we're at today, because Paul is at a pivotal point in, I I guess you could call it his argument, but really just his introduction about who he is and what he's about and what the gospel is. And uh, he said up to this point that, you know, God is God. And and, and that God has made everything. And what's more is God has made himself known to everyone. And so when we talk about God's wrath and we talk about God's judgment, he knows that one of the big things that people are going to want to say is, but we didn't know. And what Paul, has, what Paul has said up to this point is that everybody has had the chance to know. Everybody has seen the same creation that we all see. That you walk outside and you look around and you say, someone had to make this. God had to make this. And even more than that, there are other ways, more specifically, that God has shown himself to be who he is. And so Paul says we all stand condemned based on that very fact. What's more is he says, as he goes on, he says that those of us that think we're better, he especially turns his argument towards uh, Jewish Christians. He says those that think that they're better because they have the law, they know the law, they hold people to the standards of the law, they themselves are judged by the same thing. And we all fall short of that. We, we, we're hypocrites. That the law that we cling to actually makes us out to be hypocrites and turns around and condemns us. It doesn't save us in the way that we think it does. And so Paul's gotten to this point, and he's kind of laid out this, this argument, and he, he's kind of blowing people's minds, kind of saying, this is what the gospel message is, that we're all sinners, we all fall short, and we need Jesus Christ, no matter how good you think you are. And so like any good person that knows how to argue and debate will do is they start coming up with in their own mind what they know people's responsibility. Paul actually gets here in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 and he says, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Paul says, if this was me, what would I say to someone that was saying this very thing? And Paul's in a really good position to say this because he says, because he's essentially saying, if I'm someone that has poured my life into being a good person, following God's law, if I've built myself up on that, if I've been great about it, the most zealous, as Paul says in other places, what would I say to someone that comes along and says, none of that matters, and actually that very thing that you think you're so good at doing is actually the thing that's condemning you? How would I react to that, Paul says? 
But Paul's doing this because he, he knows himself, he knows people, he knows what the response will be, but he also does this here because Paul has to. This isn't a text conversation where Paul is firing off like a long list of texts and people are living in like, whoa, man, you're blowing me up on a Saturday. What are you doing here? And they're able to respond back and they're able to have this back and forth in real time. Paul's writing a letter and it takes months for these letters to get places. And Paul says, I know this is going to be the conversation we're going to be having. So let's just go ahead and have it. Because I know this is how you're going to respond. I know this is where people go in their thinking. See, the thing is, we would ask the same question. We would ask the same question that Paul is asking here. We would ask the same question that I guarantee his readers in Rome were asking. That is, well, if you say that the law does all these things, if you say the law actually works in the way that you say it does, if it kind of actually turns around and condemns us rather than saves us, then we would be asking the question, well, what good is it then? Why in the world do we have it? Why do we talk about it? Why do we look to it? Why did God give it to us? If God's rules can't save us and they only condemn us, why have it in the first place? I mean, this seems like a pretty high standard to live to. This seems like a really hard thing to do. And for those people that are able to get even close to it, closer than the rest of us, man, that seems awfully like messed up. That God would give us this thing that won't actually save us. That God would give us this way of living that is different from everyone else, that is harder than everyone else, that requires more of us, more self-control than we want to have, more self-introspection than is comfortable, more humility than any of us ever want to have to display. What good is it if none of that doesn't result in some kind of extra benefits or preferred status? Why would we want it? Why would we want to be here on a Sunday, the day after Christmas, when it's snowing outside and everybody else has stayed in in their pajamas and are a whole lot more comfortable, if not that fact that those of us that are here are getting some extra benefits somewhere down the road, right? We want it to do something extra, to do something more. We all ask and wonder these kind of things from time to time in our lives. And if, if you say, well, I don't think so. I, I'm perfectly good with, you know, things seemingly being unfair. I think you're lying to yourself. Or, I mean, you might be a better person than me. But I know from personal experience, this is how I feel. This is where my mind goes. Um, I can tell you that in middle school, in early high school, the worst night of my week was Wednesday nights. It was Wednesday nights because that was the night that about halfway through basketball practice, my dad would come in and they would have to stop basketball practice because I had to go to prayer meeting at church. That The coach would stop everything and be like, Matt's got to go. And in front of all my friends, in front of the other team, I had to leave the thing I would rather be doing and go sit with a group of about 15 people that were nowhere near my age range in a church and pray. I'd be sitting there the entire time, supposed to be praying, and I'd get, down, I'd get down on the floor, and I'd crawl under the pew, and I would lay down because I didn't want to be there. And I'd be thinking about all of the stuff I was missing because I had to be there on that Wednesday night when I'd already been there Sunday morning, and I'd already been there Sunday night. I had been there way more than anybody else my age ever had to go to church because my dad was the pastor, and so I had to be there. And while I was thinking about that and how I didn't want to be there, and all my friends got to keep doing their thing, I would fall asleep under the pew because, man, I was bored. 
But I would be thinking most importantly about how unfair it was because, see, the thing was is I went to a Catholic school. And all my friends were Catholic. And the thing that was so overwhelming to me was how much stuff I had to do to be a quote-unquote good Christian. And my Catholic friends got to do whatever they wanted to do. All that was required from them was try to go to Mass once a week and get to confession every now and then. And the amazing thing was is that our school, once a month, we went to confession as a class, so they already had that built in. What's more is we went to Mass like every other week, so they even had that built in. And so here I am, like my friends are going out, they're doing whatever they want to do, they're talking however they want to talk, they're living however they want to live, they're getting to go to the basketball practice every night of the week, and they're not having their dad come in and yank them out of practice. And as a middle schooler and high schooler, I'm thinking, what good is this? If at the end of the day, they get Jesus, and I get Jesus, at the end of life, they're okay, and I'm okay, why in the world do I need to be doing all this extra stuff that I don't want to do anyway? All this extra stuff that's hard, that's not fun. It takes me away from the thing I really want to be doing. We ask the same question all the time through our lives. Like when we really think about it, we've probably all wrestled with, why do I need to live this way now every day when a deathbed confession will do the same trick? Why do I need to be honest on the little things when I'm straightforward and honest and clear and honoring to God on the big things. I mean, it's little things. We were walking out of Target uh, the other day, and we, we, uh, we just bought Elsie um, her big girl bed, and so we were getting, like, bedding for it. And uh, we walk out of Target, and we're, we're loading the car up, and we realized that while we were shopping for stuff, um, we had thrown Hannah's coat on top of um, a set of flannel sheets and hadn't paid for them. And so, like, we, like, uncover that, and, Han- and I'm like, uh, we didn't pay for that. And Hannah was like, are you going to go back inside? And I thought, no, I spent enough money at Target anyway. I think I, owe, I, think I deserve these. And what's more is it's their fault because their security sucks. Um, like, that's on them. My wife gave me a look, and I was like, ah, yeah, we'll go back in. We walk back in. We walk back in. I'm, like, expecting, like, walking in with these sheets, and, like, God's going to be like, let me see your receipt. Like, okay, you're going over here. We walked it back in. We walked by the guy. We walked by customer service. We went back to the check-in line. We, like, look at the lady in the line that, like, is, like, checking us out. Same lady, and she looks at us like she's never seen us before. And I'm like, the whole time, I'm like, I did not need to come back in and buy these things. Why do I need to be honest on a small thing when, for the most part, I'm honest on the big things? Why do I need to constantly introspect, allow, more importantly, the Holy Spirit to search me out for things that are not of God when I know my complete body of work is honoring to Him? Man, that's uncomfortable. To day after day, week after week, be allowing God to search us out. Why do I need to do that? What good is it when I see other people who I know for a fact they aren't that humble. They aren't that willing to allow God into their life and to speak to them in uncomfortable ways like that. And it seems like, I mean, I don't know where people end up, but I think they're getting to heaven, so why do I need to go through this painful process time after time? What advantages to sacrifice day after day, week after week, what month after month, if God is still going to love me in the end? 
What good is it to live this harder life? To give up things for his sake. To see the law, to love the law, to desire to follow the law. Paul knew that Jewish Christians especially, but all Christians, would be asking this very question. And so Paul emphatically, clearly says, there is an advantage. There is an advantage to this. But more importantly, he says, if you're asking this question, if you're wrestling with it, if in any way you've ever wondered what good is all of this extra stuff, If God's just going to love us in the end and then we get to spend eternity with him. It says you're missing the point. You're missing the point if this is a question that is turning you into knots. So what's the point? Well, Paul starts out in verses 3 and 4 and he tells us what isn't the point, actually. If we turn there and we go back, which I thought I had the slide there, which I don't. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, I know this argument. And this argument goes something like this. What you're thinking in your head, where you're missing the point, and and what the point is, what it's not. The argument goes something like, it's an optics issue. That we think the problem with this whole idea that people could live their lives doing the right thing, going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, small group, never miss a beat, never miss a, a Sunday, ne- never break any of the law outwardly, and yet somehow still stand condemned. That whole idea doesn't look good on God. Right? Doesn't sound like it would be well received by other people that it would look good on him, reflect well on him, if everything that he asks us to do in the end doesn't actually save us. It doesn't reflect well on God if the people he has chosen are themselves unfaithful. What kind of a good God chooses a group of people who don't actually follow him? That chooses a group of people, sets them free, does all this stuff for them, and they keep turning their backs on him time and time again. That doesn't look good. I mean, at this point, we kind of all turn into PR managers, right? We're like, I mean, God, this doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. If If you're looking for people to follow you, this isn't the way we would do it. It doesn't seem to be an advantage for us or for him. We end up condemned. He, end up, he ends up looking bad. He needs to maybe, I don't know, just kind of lighten up a little bit. Do this a different way. Wouldn't he be better served, we think, in our minds to do this some other way? That if he came up with some system to where, like, I don't know, we could just kind of keep being the way we are, but we all end up saved, that would look really good on him, right? Like, that, that would say something about him. People would see that and be like, wow, that's an amazing God. Maybe I should follow him too. See, what 
Paul's trying to get across to us, what he's trying to say to the Roman church, I think to every church after that, is that we need to understand something so vital and important that we often miss the point on. And that is God doesn't need you. God does not need you. Merry Christmas. So uplifting, so feel good. But we make the mistake time and time again in our thinking and in our living and our relating to him that what he has done has been in some way for himself. That God has given the law, chosen people, even sent Jesus Christ for himself. That something in all of this, everything that God has done throughout human history, was tied up in something he needed. Something that God needed. And usually what we end on, what we land on, is that God needs glory. And so what God has done in all of this stuff is to bring himself glory. And so God needs us. He needs people that are faithful, people that are saved, people that are loved. Because in us being loved, it will bring glory to him. Paul says, that's not it. That's not the point of all of this. God doesn't need you in that way. And he turns to somebody that is a trusted source in this to make his point. He turns to Psalm 51 and a Psalm of David to show us exactly what he's talking about. He, he, he says there, he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're a judge. He's, he's quoting Psalm 51, which is a Psalm that David wrote after David had been confronted about the sin he had committed with Bathsheba. If you know about that, you know that, that David sees Bathsheba, a married woman on a rooftop bathing, and overcome with his lust for her, he, he, he sleeps with her. And then realizing what he's done, David tries to get her husband to sleep with her so he can cover up his mistake. And when, his husband, when her husband won't do that, he sends him to the front lines and has him killed. David gets confronted with this, and, 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 he, and he writes this psalm of confession about what he has done, but more importantly, who God is. And in that, David does something remarkable. David declares that God is the standard for everything, that God needs nothing. That, that one verse, if we just look at that entire verse, there in Psalm 51, verse 4, I go home and read Psalm 51. It is an amazing statement about who God is. But there he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David could have said he has sinned against a whole lot of people because he had sinned against a whole lot of people. What David focuses on and says is, I've sinned against God because God is the standard. And no matter what I do, no matter how I am, no matter how, far, how far, far I may fall, that does not change who God is because he's the standard. In, in this 
psalm, David starts off by asking for pardon from God, and the word he uses and the phrasing that is there is what he's asking for is a pardon on no basis whatsoever. He's simply appealing to God's love and God's mercy, and he even says, I have no reason to ask for these things. Why? Because I have fallen short of you, and you're the standard. What David is saying here in verse 4 is that no matter what happens, God's going to be glorified. No matter what happens to him in this place, whether God chooses to pardon him or not, God is going to be glorified. He doesn't say, Lord, pardon me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy on me so that people will know you and you will be glorified. He says, please pardon me, but even if you don't, you will be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you pardon me, you will be glorified because of your mercy and love. If you don't, you're going to be glorified because you're just. And you're right. And you're righteous. The fact of our lives, the fact of who God is, is that God does not need us in order for him to be glorified. Because he's going to be glorified either way. Your life, your success, none of God's glory is tied up in it. Now, Paul asks, Paul, Paul in, in, in writing another letter to the churches, he, he, he prays that we would be praised to God's glory, that we, we would show off the glory of God. But Paul never anywhere says, it's on us for God to be glorified. Whether he saves us or he judges us, he's going to be glorified. Either way. The point of all this, the point of what uh, David was writing about and asking about, it wasn't to fix God's reputation. The, the point of everything that God has done, that he has given the law, that he has given us his word, that, that he has sent Jesus Christ, it wasn't to fix his reputa- reputation. It wasn't to give certain people a cheat code to make him look better. It wasn't like he was giving us the answers to the test and just saying, do this, guys, so it reflects well on me. That wasn't the point of all of this. It's not the point of Christmas. Because God doesn't need us. Paul starts off this passage by saying, so what then advantage is all of this stuff, right? What advantage is the gospel? What advantage is it living this life that calls us to something different than what we would normally do? He says, well, the advantage is not that the gospel brings to us any sense of irreplaceability. We often talk about the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is really good news, and it brings such good news. But the hard news of the gospel is that we are not functionally necessary to the plans of God. God does not need you or me to do what God is going to do. But we do think it's the other way around oftentimes in our lives. We, we get tricked into thinking that. I, I, I think it's just, it's sin at our core that we say, but how could God not get along without me? When we find ourselves in David's 
position, we say things like, you know, maybe we should get some perspective here. I'm not that bad overall. Yeah, I screwed up on one thing. That was rough. But I mean, let's look at the bigger picture here of what I've done, what I do, where I'm at. Look at the position I have. If I were to fall, what would that say to people about who God is? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that about other people? Looked at other people and the status they have, the position they have. I know we think it about pastors. We all have pastors in our life that we look to and stuff. And we think, man, if they fall, how would that reflect on who God is? The thing is, it doesn't. Because he's the standard. And he does not need us to prove who he is. He is going to be glorified no matter what. When in David's position, we like to think God needs me to do well because if I don't, it would reflect bad on him. And so that adds an extra level of grace that I think we all can agree we need. When in David's position, we say he has to forgive me for the sake of people seeing his love. I don't have to come to grips with what I've done, who I am, what I'm prone to. What's more is I think it's unreasonable for there to be an expectation that my entire life has to be in line with him. That there can be things that, you know what, I just kind of choose to do. That, that as long as like most of it is in line, on, on target. Like there, there are just certain things I kind of get for myself. I, I can actually have things in certain areas the way I want. And I can actually use God to justify those things. Again, Paul would tell us, you're missing the point. If at any point in time you're asking yourself, what's the advantage of all this stuff? Because if I fall short, it's going to reflect bad on God. And so he's there to pick me up. And he's not expecting me to measure up in all of these ways. What's the point of me coming to church? What's the point of me being involved in community? What's the point of me being fully chasing after him and him alone in my life. What advantage is it? He kind of switches gears. He kind of keeps going. Paul keeps going in the same thought flow. And yet, like, subtly switches gears on us here in verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the unrighteousness of God... What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. What he's saying here is there are people that, in reaction to this, they're going to say, so what advantage is it to having the law? And he says, there's great advantage. And so, you know, it goes through everything that we just went through. And he says, I know that other people are going to say, so wait a second, though. Like, maybe this is like a contrasting thing. That, like, if I can't, like, measure up, and the law's there and stuff. Okay, we're going to make this work. Let's see how we can figure this out. Let's jerry-rig this thing, right? They're like, well, maybe if I'm really bad, then it's going to show how good he is. And it's kind of funny because Paul basically, like, you can tell in just the language that's used here, Paul jumps out of his seat because he's like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's really like one of those arguments. He kind of gets to the end and he doesn't really refute it. He just says, like, you're condemned, because he's like, that's so dumb, I can't even really argue with it. I don't even really know I- I- exactly wh- where to begin. He-, he uses the phrase here, he says, by no means. He said this once before in verse 4. 
these two references, the, 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 these two uses of, of by no means, this is the strongest language he can come up with. Paul's saying, like, let it never be so. It is impossible to imagine that that even has an inkling of a chance of being reality. It's the first time he ever uses it in Romans. He'll use it a handful more times as we go through Romans. The amazing thing is, Paul never uses it again in any of the other letters he writes. Paul is pouring his heart out and screaming as loud as he can about how crazy this idea is, about what God has done. Because the ultimate point that Paul is trying to make, he says what this is all about, what this is all pointing to, the reason for the law, the reason for Scripture, the reason for Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is that God doesn't need you, but man, does he want you. God does not need you, but he does want you. And there is a big difference between needing and wanting. Uh, It's like buying a car. And when you walk onto a lot and you're talking to a car salesman, which is everybody's favorite thing to do. If you're a car salesman, I'm sorry. It's not fun. There's a big difference if you walk onto the lot and you need a car Versus you want a car. Me and Hannah bought, uh, when we were first married, she was driving pretty far to work. And so uh, we, somebody uh, that we knew through um, uh, a family member was, was selling a, a Honda Civic Hybrid. And, and they hadn't been able to drive it for a while because uh, they, uh, they couldn't pay the insurance on it. So they were selling it to us for a deal. And we were like, this is going to save us so much money. And we're getting a really good deal on this thing. We had the car for about like three months. So like she went from having a car that was burning oil and getting about eight miles to the gallon uh, to having a car that was getting like 35 miles to the gallon. We we're like, oh, man, we're like not only did we save money on buying it, we're saving so much money, you know, on gas every week. And, and so we had this car for like three or four months. And then all of a sudden, all at once, we get a check engine light and this like really weird light that we had no clue what was going on. We took it in, and they looked at it, and they said, the catalytic converter's going bad. Not a big deal. going to cost you $1,800. But the other light is for the battery, and because it's set, and it hasn't uh, charged and discharged and recharged and everything on a consistent basis, the battery's dying. And so to replace the cells in that battery and everything is going to cost you $5,000. And so the money we saved on the car, all of a sudden we were going to have to be spending on the car. And we were like, we don't have that kind of money. Um, we, were, we were poor. Um, and so uh, we drove for a while. I asked the guys, like, so how long does it have? Like, what can we do? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you can drive it. It's just the, the cells are going to keep dying. And before long, you're going to have a glorified, a really nice golf cart that you can drive around. And that's going to be where it's at. And so uh, we, we took it uh, on a road trip up to see my grandma. And on the way back, we were like, we got to get rid of this car. So we, put, we, we, we pulled into a dealership. And I told Hannah, I was like, if they will give us $4,500 for this car, because it's not worth really anything at this point, it's theirs. Like, I don't care what the deal is. We need a car. They took it down. We told them everything that was wrong with it. Um, I, wa- I didn't want to. Um, again, it was like flannel sheets. Uh, just, you know, hey, I think we've earned this. And, uh, but Hannah was like, she gave me that look. And I was like, okay, we got to tell them. So we told them everything that was wrong with the car. They came back to us and they're like, we'll give you $5,200. I was like, it's yours. What do you have on the lot? Like... And so we were there, and the thing was, we needed a car, we didn't have a car, we had to have two cars, and so we just took whatever they had available. 
I have a friend, uh, they've been looking for a car, and uh, they don't really, they, they need one, but they don't really need the, the one that they have. It's dying, but it, is, it still works. And so I've been talking to them about, like, well, what is it you're looking for? And, like, they've, like, they've, they're like, well, we, want, we know we want this. We want this package. We want this kind of interior trim. We want this color. All those sorts of things. And so they're really specific. And so they, they finally found it. They, they actually ordered it because they're like, we don't need it right now. This is the car we want. There's such a huge difference between needing and wanting something. Needing is desperation. Needing means I'll take whatever I can get. Wanting says I can wait for the thing that I know is right and that I really desire. God doesn't need you. God wants you. So what that means is that, Paul, that God's not going to just take whatever he can get from us. What God wants from us is a relationship. In a relationship where all the things that get between us and him, all the things that we desire rather than him, are obliterated from our lives so it is just us and him because he wants us that badly, he loves us that much, that he is not willing to settle for anything less. That God wants us and he wants us to want him. Paul says this is the point that all of this has been about. Not that you can keep living your life the way that you have, going after things that are other than God. God has paid the price to create a way that you and him can live in relationship where it is about him and him alone. That he is the thing our hearts desire. That he is the one that we want. That we don't do all of this simply because we think it says something about who we are and it's an outward show for other people and it gives us some preferred status. That we do what we do because we desire to love him and it's the way that we love him and we know him. That's what this is about. That's what Christmas is about. And that is the depth and the love that God has been willing to go for you and me so that we can have that kind of a relationship with him. And the reason Paul gets so animated here, the reason he gets so worked up, the reason that he uses this phrase by no means is because it infuriates him because it diminishes what Jesus has done. And it's so much less to settle for. Paul says this idea that people are throwing out there, that people were actually saying that we say about the gospel, that people were actually going around and saying that what Paul is promoting is this life where you can just sin and not take responsibility and do all that. He, Paul says that's not it. By saying that the law doesn't save you, it actually points to something greater, that Jesus Christ saves you, and what's more is that Jesus Christ changes you. And that the reason he gives the Spirit is so that he can love you and you will love him in return in the way that he has loved you. He says th this idea that's being thrown out there, it is cheap, it costs nothing, and it does nothing. In writing like one of his like, best-known books, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, talked about this. and He said, what, what it, what it, we're talking about grace here. And he says, this idea, this idea that Paul is refuting here, well, it's cheap grace. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't cost that much either. He says something that doesn't cost much doesn't actually do that much. He says cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. 
Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. It's as if, let's just say for a minute, I had the power to erase everybody's debt in the world. And so from this very place, I just declared everybody's debt free. That would be pretty great, right? Cost me nothing to do that. The only problem is I haven't actually changed a whole lot, have I? I haven't changed the spending habits of those people that were in debt. I haven't changed their desire for the things that got them there. I haven't changed the systems that maybe placed them there. I haven't really done all that much. seems great on the surface, right, to say everybody's debt-free and, oh, what a relief. But what's to say they're not going to go right out and put themselves back into debt, right? It's pretty cheap, and that's what cheap grace does. It just says you're okay where you are. Just keep living the way you want to live. And God is standing there saying, but I want so much more for you. Don't just run back to those things that I've saved you from. He's actually paid a price for us that we will not go back to the things that put us in that place of condemnation. I mean, we like the idea of cheap grace. It's easy. It doesn't cost a lot. It's very comfortable. And then what it means is because I'm covered by it, I get to live my life the way the rest of the world does. I get to vote the way they do. I get to raise my kids the way they do. I get to spend my money the way they do. I get to retire the way they do. God has done everything he has done, Paul says, because he wants a relationship. But we're so twisted and focused on ourselves that we can't reciprocate. It's something deep that has to be changed. And when it's something that deep, like spending habits, let's say, that have put us in debt, it costs a lot, and it's very painful to change those things. But because he doesn't need us, and he won't just take what he can get, Paul says, he has paid the price. The price of costly grace, so that we can be different, so that we can know him. In comparing costly grace to cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, Grace is costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. It will cost us much as well. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is Christmas. The cost that yesterday, that God had to pay and was willing to pay to send his son, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but gave himself up and took the form of a slave, even to the point of death. Why? Because God wants us so bad that he's not willing to simply take us squandering in sin and say, okay, I'm going to leave you there, but just know I love you. 
while we're miserable and dying. But he actually says, I love you how you are, and I love you enough to not leave you there. It'll be painful. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to be humble. You're going to have to be open. You're going to have to be willing to let me say some pretty hard things to you and show some things that are inside of you. But the point is, I want you enough that I'm willing to do that so that you and I can have the relationship I desire. Paul says this is the gospel message, and it is so deep, it is so loving, that our minds can't even wrap themselves around it. The love of God goes so much further than we think it does. And Christmas shows us the heavy price he's willing to pay for that. And so it makes sense that Paul would get so worked up and say, don't, even for a second, think that it's possible to keep living the way that you've lived before, to keep doing the things that the world does and thinking that somehow that's what God wants out of all of this. He wants so much more. He wants you. So what advantage is it to have all of these things? What advantage is it to actually have to give yourself to be present emotionally, spiritually in moments like these rather than being to check out? What advantage is it leaving Basketball practice halfway through on a Wednesday night? I don't think it was much of the prayer services I was going to, but what advantage is it? It's everything. Because what we get out of it isn't just some rubber stamp, you're okay, keep going about the way that you were going. What we get out of all of this is God himself. What all of this means, what living this life is about isn't, that we get some preferred status or extra benefits. We get the thing that we want and we get God and we get God now rather than waiting until some far off place. Why is it that it's better to live this now and have this now than getting to live your life the way you want to and then confessing on your deathbed? Why? Because you get that relationship with him now. You get to know the depth of that love. You get to start living eternally now. What advantage is it? Paul says it's everything. It says the Jews have been given the oracles of God. By that way, he says this, they know God. They know his heart, and they know how much he loves them. And can you imagine living and walking through a world full of darkness if you knew just how much God loved you? What a difference that would make, what change that would be. That is the cost God has paid for you and me. He loves us that much. He wants us that much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I think in light of everything, of, of this passage and just this entire weekend, and your grace is overwhelming. I, I, I find myself completely in awe of who you are and what you have done. That you love us this much. Not enough to just simply pay a price for us and declare that we're okay, but you love us enough that you have, you have gone that extra mile and you have said, I, I don't want to leave you where you are. That I want to have the relationship that I intended from the get-go, in the garden. And you have walked that path in Jesus for our sake. 
Father, I, I, I know that this is a time and a place that it, it, is, it, it is good to just ask that you would come and speak to our hearts and that you would show any of us that if we are settling for less than what your heart is, if, if we have fallen into the trap of thinking that you need us somehow for your glory and not realizing that that's not the case, but that you truly want us, that we would give that up, that we would ask for you to, to save us, for us to put our faith in you and, and to know the depth of your love. And Lord, I pray if there is anyone that is listening to this and they're in that place, that that would be the case, that your Holy Spirit would tear away just whatever it is that is between you and them. And that their desire, their heart would be changed, the desire is for you and for you alone. Father, I, I, I just feel like in this moment, in this day, just this weekend, I, what, I just want to praise you for the love that you have shown us, that you have poured out upon us. And Lord, would you help us to just never, never take it for granted. To understand that the greatest thing we could ask for is knowing you and you have given us that in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for the gift of Christmas. Thank you for the cost that you have paid that we may know you. Would you help us to love you better and to know you more fully? It's in your name we pray. Amen.